You can open there in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. I was listening to a podcast not too long ago about a, a, a kind of a crazy moment during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Some of you uh, will remember those days. There was a moment that nuclear war seemed so, so imminent that the Strategic Command Center in Nebraska was the general in charge there was so certain that they were going to be ordered to fire nuclear missiles and so certain that they were going to be fired back upon from, from the Russians that they were certain that death was imminent. And so they locked down this command center. No one is able to go in or out. And the general that was there in charge told everybody that worked there, you can have one phone call home. Like that's how certain he was that death was coming. They could have one phone call home, but they weren't allowed to tell their family why they were calling. So they got one last conversation, but they could not say that it seems like we're all going to get blown up here, right? Can you imagine that? One author said this, the conversations were about kids' scraped knees and sick dogs. And to this, the podcast host said, of course, right? What can words do when you're staring death in the face? What can words do when you're staring death in the face? The host again says, what is there to say in the face of death? Well, what we have in our passage is Jesus staring death in the face. Not like 99.9% probability like this general assumed. He is staring his death in the face. He knows it's coming. He's planned it. He has been orchestrating the details to this point. But he has a different sort of relationship with death. So his conversations are not about scraped knees and sick dogs. His goal is to equip his disciples for the work that will go forth as a result of his death and as a result of his resurrection that they will go forth with the announcement to the world that Jesus Christ has indeed died and risen again. And so this is what we find on Jesus' lips as he prepares to die. Now this is technically like part two of this larger discourse that began with with Jesus gathering his disciples. It's it's his instruction on the Lord's Supper followed by by this, we might call it the farewell discourse. He's He's equipping his disciples for his coming death. So Jesus began by instituting this ordinance of the Lord's Supper that would be a way to commemorate his impending sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross. And then we saw that the conversation moved towards Jesus undermining the perceived greatness of the disciples in their own mind. They want to, they wanted to jockey for position. And Jesus reminds them that the greatest among you is the one who serves. The greatest among you is the one who's willing to be treated as the youngest in the family, a servant to all. That is the one who will be regarded as great. And then last week we ended with looking at Jesus's prediction of Peter's denial. Again, Peter was overconfident despite what Jesus was warning about. Satan desired to destroy the faith of the disciples, particularly 
Peter, but Jesus had interceded for them on their behalf that they would not completely, fully, finally walk away from Christ. And so we saw that Christ is faithful, even in the midst of the faithlessness of Peter and the other disciples, to the point that even before the betrayal, Jesus is speaking to Peter of Peter's uh, certain repentance and restoration to a place where he would be able to serve and, and strengthen and encourage his fellow disciples. Okay, so that's all part of this larger discourse. It wraps up this morning with verses 35 through 38. Let's go ahead and read it since... Dave read a a related passage that we'll get to because Jesus obviously quotes Isaiah 53 for us. It says, And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So we've had two occasions earlier in Luke where Jesus sent out his disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God. The first time was in chapter 9, where where the 12 were sent out. The second time was in chapter 10, when it was the 12, plus some others, the 70 were sent out to kind of heal and to to preach the kingdom of God. And what what, what Jesus does here is he uses this, this past instance to then tweak what he's telling his disciples, really, I think, to make this point. Followers of Christ, and this is point number one if you take notes, If not, just follow along. That's great. Followers of Christ should expect opposition from the world. Followers of Christ should expect opposition from the world. Right. So in both of these times where he sent out the disciples, again, the 12 or the 70, he gave really similar instructions. If you remember way back when we were in chapter 9 and 10, they weren't to pack everything they needed. Right? He said, don't grab your knapsack. Don't grab your money bag. Don't worry about that. This is not that sort of mission. Instead, you need to go out and you need to enter a city and you need to preach the kingdom and somebody will, will likely take you into their home and they will provide for you. And remember, he warned them, like, don't, don't just jump to like somebody else's house just because he's got greater amenities. Right? This person has a nicer, nicer house. They were not to serve themselves in that way. Instead, they were to eat and drink what was provided for them. They were to stay where they were welcome. And if they were rejected in a town, they were to kind of shake the dust off and they were to move on to the next town because it was likely that in that next town there would be somebody that would be willing to show them hospitality, bring them in, care for them, provide for them, and give them a warmer welcome. And so what Jesus does is he alludes back to that in verse 35. He, he says, do you remember when I, when I sent you out and I said this to you? Did you lack anything? And they say, no. We were always able to find someone within Israel, someone within the town that would take us in, that would care for us, that would provide for us, that would sustain the work of the ministry, that it could go forth from 
Israel. The, the, the people of Israel at that point were receptive enough to, to put up the disciples, to feed the disciples, to show them hospitality. So what's happening is in, in the Gospel of Luke that we've seen is the opposition of Christ has been ramping up. In chapter 9 and 10, it was primarily the religious elite who were, who were antagonistic to Jesus. In a, a matter of verses here, we'll be hearing the crowd cry out to crucify Christ. Right, so the disciples at one point early on in Jesus' ministry could expect enough provision from their fellow Israelites that they could go on mission without their money bag, without their knapsack, without even sandals on their feet. It will be provided for you. And what Jesus does is, but now, right? But now things are about to change. So he set up the previous experience of the disciples to contrast it with what will be true moving forward. You weren't to take, you could get away with it in the past, right? Not taking anything the first couple times. But now he says, you need to take your money bag and you need to take your knapsack, right? And, and even Jesus says, you need to procure a sword, even if it means you know, selling an extra cloak in order to get this sword. Now this, this reference to the sword is a little bit uh, befuddling, right? Clearly, Jesus didn't mean that the disciples would need to use the threat of the sword to coerce people to follow Jesus. God is not after mere coercion. He's not after threatening with the, the, the threat of violence. Follow Jesus or else. God is after the heart. And it is not violence that will create a people who are zealous for God and for the gospel, a people for God's own possession, zealous for good works. It's not the sword that will produce that. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working through the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. In fact, many here this morning could stand up and share how God powerfully worked through the foolishness of preaching or through the foolishness of, you know, we use that word uh, figuratively, the foolishness of the message of the gospel that a man died and rose again. And you could say, the Spirit used that to open my eyes and, and call me to faith in Christ. And I responded with faith and repentance and was justified and my life was transformed and changed. That's what God uses to change lives the preaching of the gospel, and the power of the Holy Spirit. So we know that Jesus isn't calling for the sword to, to, to use in that way. We also know that, that, that later on in Luke, Jesus will rebuke Peter for taking up the sword and attacking somebody that's come to betray and arrest Jesus. So we know that he's actually not calling for the sword to be used in that sense either. In fact, we don't have any example in the, in the book of Acts as the disciples go forth and do the mission that Jesus is alluding to here, that they took up the sword and attacked people, even their own persecutors. Okay, so I, I would argue it seems best then to take Jesus' reference to the sword as a reference to the opposition that they will face. This will not be a time of peace, right? The sword pictures kind of the opposite of peace. Again, this is, I think, consistent with the way the passage 
our, our passage this morning ends. Right? The disciples kind of take inventory in verse 38 and they say, Look here, look here, Jesus. We've got two swords. And Jesus says, It is enough. Right? So, so Jesus' words can mean one of two things there. It can mean two swords is enough. Right? So clearly he's not arming a militia. Right? Two swords is enough. Or it can mean something like, that's enough. You know, your parents, you, you, you who have kids will write, that's enough, right? Drop it. Okay, it could mean that. And there's examples of that being used that way, even in the, in the Greek version of the Old Testament. Either way, Jesus is clearly not looking to arm themselves for rebellion, but is, pre- is preparing his people for the opposition that they will face. You will face opposition. They will be targets of opposition, even though Jesus forbids them from seeking their own revenge against their enemies. He's already called them to love their enemies and to pray for them and to serve them. I think what Jesus is getting at is in the mission that they are called to, and they will be specifically called to following the resurrection of Jesus at the end of Luke. You can read about the end of Matthew. You can read about the beginning of Acts. In this mission, they will need every resource necessary. Right? In other words, to, to, to just boil it down, things are going to change from the first time I sent you out. Things are going to be different. One thing that's different is the length of, like, of time, the, the duration of their being sent out. And in the first two times, it was like, hey, why don't you hit some towns around here and then we'll all gather back and we'll talk about... We'll talk about how it went. Well, this newer mission from that Jesus will give to his apostles, his disciples, is no less urgent, but there will certainly be a longer duration of time, and Jesus will not be present with them in the exact same way that he was during the time of his earthly ministry. Instead, the apostles will need to rely on the Spirit and to remain faithful in their task. Uh, trusting in the presence of Christ through the, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, not through the physical presence of Jesus. So another change then is that the first two times that they were sent out, well, they could get away with not taking provisions because, again, not only length of time, but length of distance. They were in Israel. They were amongst their fellow Israelites. And so Jesus' words here, I think, of, of gearing up in order for this mission to be sent out are, are a preview that the dis- disciples will be sent to far less familiar territories than just around Israel. Rather than simply traversing in, in Israel, they will go to the uttermost parts of the earth proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. They will be called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Right, and we see that, again, in the book of Acts, that um, the 11 plus Matthias is a replacement for Judas, plus the Apostle Paul, who says he was one untimely born. Right? They, they give their lives to go proclaim this message to places and cities and countries they'd never been to. And a, a third thing that will change, though, and I think the main point that Jesus is making, is that the apostles will experience more opposition than they did back in chapter 9, back in chapter 10. There will be more resistance to their message. 
the tide of op- opposition towards them will grow. Right? And again, all you have to do is read the book of Acts to see this. You see in the book of Acts both instances of Jewish uh, persecution and you see instances of Gentile persecution. Right? The opposition is present there in the book of Acts. In fact, Jesus even warned in John chapter 16, verse 2, he warned the disciples that, you know what, there's even going to be people who think by persecuting you that they are serving God. Right? And, and the Apostle Paul, before his conversion, is the perfect example of that. Right? He thinks he's being faithful to the Lord by persecuting these blasphemers who say Jesus is the Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and that there's forgiveness available in his name. Paul thought he was serving God by going after these people who would preach that message. Well, this is what Jesus is getting at. The opposition will rise. And it's, it was true for the apostles and it's true for the church. Right, The Apostle Peter, who's hearing this message, who experienced the opposition of the book of Acts, he would write to the church uh, uh, that they should not be surprised when they endure opposition for the sake of the gospel. Right, He told them not to act as if something strange were coming upon them. One of the reasons Peter could know this is not just from his own experience, but because he's, he's echoing the very words that he heard from Christ. And so one thing we can, we can think about as we seek to understand and apply this text that we as the church should expect to be opposed for the gospel. We should expect to be opposed and we should seek to live in such a way that any opposition that we face is the result of our faithfulness to Christ. That means loving others well. That means being sacrificial towards one another and towards our neighbors. It means enduring mistreatment without seeking retaliation or seeking our own revenge. It means what Paul said in the book of Romans, that insofar as you are able, live at peace with all men. It means seeking to be a peaceable neighbor and and you know, we would say a benefit to the community. We should seek to take away every reason to hate us except our commitment to Jesus and His Word. That's what I'm getting at. We should seek to take away every reason to hate us except our commitment to Jesus and His Word. But we should expect that we cannot, through our good works, through letting our light so shine before men, through our selfless sacrifice and love of neighbor, we should not expect that through that we can overcome all opposition to us or to the gospel. Right? Joy, love, peace, all these things are not tricks that can then stop all persecution or opposition. That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to say. So we should try everything in our power not to be rude or uncaring or ungodly. But we, we should not look, we should not be surprised when we are looked down on or ostracized or looked at askance if we are following Jesus. Well, that should not surprise us. And I think that's what Jesus is driving at here with his apostles. 
Jesus, in fact, gives the reason there in verse 37 that the disciples can expect opposition. Verse 37, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. So before we get to the fulfillment, right, which is really fun, it's, oh, let's look at where Jesus quoted from the Old Testament. How does he fulfill this? We'll get to that. But we don't want to lose sight of the flow of the passage. We don't want to lose sight of how these verses connect to one another. Jesus said to his disciples, it's time for you to get your provisions ready for another mission. And it's going to be different than the other mission. It will be one of opposition. Remember, you will need the sword, not to kill. It'll be a time of opposition because or for. Why? Why? How can we be sure? How can the apostles know? And how can we as a church know that we will face opposition because this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. So the question is, why does Jesus connect these, these two ideas? They seem at first somewhat unrelated. You will, be, you will face opposition because Isaiah 53 has to be fulfilled. I will be numbered with the transgressors. Well, I think what Jesus is saying is, Jesus' followers, beginning with his apostles, can expect to be rejected on the basis of or on the ground of the fact that Jesus was rejected, on the fact that Jesus was treated as a transgressor. If Jesus, who was truly innocent, the only truly innocent one, was treated as a criminal, then his followers can be expected to be treated poorly even at, even at times when we are not being a nuisance to society. Right? Even when we're on our best behavior, we can expect opposition. Why? Because Christ experienced opposition and rejection. I remember doing a, a funeral not too long ago, and I, I preached that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and that there's hope in him for all those who trust in his death and in his resurrection and his funeral. Uh, you know, we, we honored the life of a, a lovely, godly woman, and we laughed, and we cried, and we preached Christ. And one person, and I don't know who, it wasn't a member of the family, so if you know what funeral I'm talking about, don't try to fill in the blank here. Um, but one person who was there said this, Wow, if you weren't depressed when you came in here today, you sure would be after that sermon. And uh, this person went on and said, if you don't believe in Christ, the preacher basically said, if you don't believe in Christ, there's no hope for eternal life. Right? And so, now, I, I share that, not that I feel the need to sort of defend myself, right? I don't, I don't, I don't think I need to do that. But I, as I reflected on the sermon, I think, I really think, I think this person was offended by the gospel. I don't think there was something particularly depressing about what we did there that morning. And I, I think, and again, this is not my self-defense. This is just me reflecting. I think the only way 
to make someone with that heart, heart attitude at that time love you and not oppose you or reject you is to compromise the gospel. Right? I think if I would have said, like, hey, everybody gets to go to heaven, there'll be some people there that don't oppose that sermon, right? That message of the gospel. So I think what we have in our text is that if, if we serve Christ, who was rejected, and we proclaim his message that there is salvation in no one else, there's one name under heaven by which we must be saved, then there will be those who reject you because of your allegiance to Christ. No matter how kind or loving or generous you are. I think I'm reminded this morning of Jesus' words to his disciples when he said, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. Right? If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. So Jesus argues on the basis of his own rejection that the disciples and followers of Christ down through the ages, even to our present moment, will face opposition, persecution, and rejection. But don't misunderstand the words of Christ here. That somehow his rejection is some, some kind of mistake or some kind of loss of, of power or sovereignty. And this is where we get to the fulfillment piece. Right? He sort of set them up for opposition, but now he's talking about fulfillment. What's going on? Well, the death of Christ, this rejection of Christ, this opposition to Christ, again, that his followers will experience, it's the fulfillment of God's plan. It is the fulfillment of all that God said would happen. In other words, in the death of Christ, in this opposition, God's plan is coming to pass. And I think that's what Jesus is arguing here with this fulfillment language. The events that are about to follow as they leave that upper room and Jesus is betrayed and he is arrested and he is accused of crimes and he is uh, beaten and he is crucified. He is treated like a transgressor. This is the fulfillment of all that God said would happen. Specifically in our text, it's the fulfillment of passages like Isaiah 53. These passages, Old Testament prophets looked forward to this day and Jesus has come and he is the fulfillment of what was said many, many years ago. Right? He is bringing the words of Isaiah to completion. I think literally you could, you could uh, say that these words are coming to an end in Jesus. Right? He's the fulfillment of this text. And that's the, way, that's the way Jesus has talked about Scripture to this point. If you remember all, back in Luke chapter 18, verse 31, it says, He took the twelve aside and He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. This is why Jesus is in Jerusalem, in that upper room in the first place. Why? So that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. What sorts of things will be fulfilled in Jesus? He already said, for he, he's talking about the Son of Man, which is himself, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. 
and on the third day he will rise. This is what's going to happen, and this is the fulfillment. This is, this is the, the completion of these promises. Again, the apostles then took Jesus' instruction, and they treated the Old Testament scriptures this way. Paul, when he was, uh, I think in Antioch in Acts chapter 13, he stood up and said, when they had carried out, he's kind of relaying what happened to Jesus, when they had carried out all that was written about him, when they had done all the things that were written, that were, that were prophesied, that, were, that God said would be done, when that was done, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. See, Jesus couldn't be any more clear here. Right, I think in Luke 18, maybe you could say, oh, he's speaking a little enig- enigmatically. Like He says, okay, this is what's going to happen to the Son of Man. He's using he pronouns, right? It's, it's kind of this will happen to the Son of Man. And we're able to put the, put the two things together and say, well, Jesus is the Son of Man. So he's talking about himself. But here he could not be any more clear when he quotes Isaiah 53 and then says, what is written about me has its fulfillment." What is written about me has its fulfillment. He's saying, I am the one who will be numbered with the transgressors because I am the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. I am the long-promised Messiah. Okay, so the question then becomes this. What does it mean that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors? Right. We can flip back to Isaiah 53 and get a sense of uh, this text. As Dave mentioned, the text, the, the passage really begins back in Isaiah 52, verse 13. It's kind of a bad chapter division, but it, it, the, the, the text begins with this threefold announcement of a highly exalted. Savior, a highly exalted king, a highly exalted ruler. But then as the text develops, you see it's one who would save through suffering as our substitute. So the portion of Scripture that Jesus quotes is actually found at the end of Isaiah 53. It's there in verse 12. It says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Now, one, one Hebrew scholar suggests they be translated this way. Therefore, I will apportion to him the many. Right? I think the ESV kind of reads like, well, he'll have a part among many others. But it's probably better to take this text that the many are his part. The many are his portion. Same thing with the strong, and the strong he will apportion as himself. Why? Why, if, that, if that's correct, and I'm arguing that it is, why are the many given to the suffering servant? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The suffering servant, I think Isaiah 53, 12, the suffering servant will be given a people, will be given many people, right? Think John 6, 37. All the Father, all who the Father gives me will come to me. 
All the people that have been chosen before the foundation of the world by the Father will be given to the Son. They will be given to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. On what basis will the Father give the Son a people for his own possession? It will be because or for the, the really fourfold work that's mentioned in that passage. The fourfold work of the servant is describing what Jesus has done for you. If you are accounted among the many, if you are a believer in Christ and you've turned from sin and trusted in Him this morning, this is what He's done for you because He poured out His soul to death. That is the laying down of His life, the willing laying down of His life in humble service. Right Earlier in Isaiah 53, it says he was cut off from the land of the living. He poured out his soul to death. Also, he was numbered with the transgressors. The exalted king of Isaiah 52, 13, allowed himself to be treated as a criminal. Allowed himself to be numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53.3 says that Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. See, Isaiah 53 is clear that this suffering servant is not a criminal, but he, he is treated as a criminal for a very specific purpose. But he is one who is innocent. Look there in verse 9. It says, although, it's talking about his death there, right? Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. Now we've studied the book of Proverbs. We've studied in Luke where Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we've seen this connection in scripture that your words are guilty. You speak guilty words because you have a guilty heart, right? You, have a, you, you, have, you speak sinful words, bitter words, uh, harsh words because... Your, your heart is bitter and harsh and filled with selfish ambition. Mine too, right? I, that, that sounded like I'm just coming. All right. Um, so for Jesus to have no deceit on his lips, right? It means that his heart is also pure. He's, he's not a transgressor. He's not a criminal. He alone is innocent, but he, he is treated like a transgressor. Why? He bore the sins of many. He bore the sins of many. Verse 5 shares that similar language, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He was treated like a criminal as the means by which he might bear the punishment for transgression upon himself. Again, this fits, Jesus' quotation of Isaiah 53 fits really well with what he's just been teaching the disciples. This is my body that's given for you. Right? Or this, this cup is, is the new covenant in my blood. Right? The new covenant will be established by Jesus bearing the weight and the penalty of sin upon himself and be established by the shedding of his blood. And that's the means by which we might be forgiven of all of our transgressions. It is our transgression that was placed upon 
Christ. That's what that last phrase says. And he makes intercessions for the transgressors. He was made like a transgressor for the sake of actual transgressors. I think the idea here in Isaiah 53 is that he he interposed himself. He switched places. He bore your iniquities and now in him, you who who, who were once a transgressor of God's law, you are now accounted righteous. You are now accounted in Christ perfectly pure. So the perfect Messiah, suffering servant, would be treated as a transgressor so that transgressors might be accounted as righteous. And this is not the way that Israel was thinking about their son. right? As Jesus had come, and he's proclaiming this to his disciples, this is not the way that they were thinking about their greatest problem. They thought that they needed a military answer to an oppression problem. Right? We need a victorious military warrior king who can free us from our physical oppression. In fact, um, prior to the, the arrival of Christ, Jewish teachers would typically understand this passage to, to mean that you know all the words at, at the end of chapter 52 there, all those words, the highly exalted king, you know, the, some of this stuff at the end about him living forever, land of, of the living. Well, okay, that's about the Messiah. They would say, oh, all this stuff about suffering and, and being mistreated and being treated unjustly, that's about Israel. We are the ones who are oppressed. We are the ones who, who are being led like a lamb to the slaughter. Therefore, we need this highly exalted king to come free us from someone like the Romans so that we might be free. That is our greatest problem. They did not see that their need was much greater than being freed from oppression. Right? Their greatest problem was not the Romans. They needed a substitute to atone for their sins because they had rebelled over and over and over again against a holy and a righteous God. And what Jesus does is he so clearly takes the suffering aspect of Isaiah 53, and he says, this verse finds its fulfillment in me. There is no no two parties here. It's not an exalted one and a suffering one. It is, I, the Messiah, have come to suffer on behalf of transgressors, and as a result of my work and accomplishing salvation, I will be given a name above every name. And at my name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. They missed that they were indeed those who had rebelled against God and were in need of being made righteous. I wonder if the Lord this morning is impressing upon your heart the weight of your son, the weight of your rebellion. And if that is so, then you are in a good position to see the beauty of what Jesus is describing here, to see the beauty of what he has accomplished for you. Jesus being numbered a transgressor and treated as a transgressor so that transgressors might be treated as if they were perfectly righteous. This is only good news to those who view themselves as those who have broken God's law, transgressed his good commands. Someone taking your sentence for you is only good news 
if you have heard the guilty verdict. The death of Christ only carries significance for those who would admit that they are transgressors against God Himself and then see their need for a substitute. If the Lord is impressing upon you the weight of your sin, my encouragement to you would be turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Rest in His substitutionary work for you. For believers, I think the encouragement for us this morning is stay faithful to Christ despite the opposition. Stay faithful to Christ despite the opposition. Is it hard when you're in school and your friends start to drift into, into sin and, and rebellion and you know, if I just go with them, I can keep this comfortable little scenario where I've, I can maintain my friends, I can maintain my status, I can maintain my popularity. Is it hard when that comes into conflict with being faithful to Christ? Yeah, it's, it's hard. Is it hard when a grandchild walks away from Christ and you're forced to either you know, stick with your convictions or compromise in order to keep that relationship just kind of running smoothly? Yeah, it's, it's hard. Is it hard when there's pressure that's top down in your work to accept sinful lifestyles or even just worldly Thinking, worldly philosophy. Is it hard to remain faithful to Christ? Yeah, it certainly is. But as we look to Christ, the suffering servant, we can be strengthened to endure ill treatment for His sake. right? With meekness and love for those, even those who would treat us as an enemy. The message here of of the substitutionary work of Christ, the fact that Jesus would be treated as a transgressor, it not only delivers to us this morning the explanation for why some will be inevitably opposed to us, but it also provides for us the motivation to endure hardship, the motivation to endure rejection. So our text this morning helps us to understand that we are not above our Lord. If He was hated, we too should expect some level of hatred, but it also becomes the motivation by which we can endure opposition. Jesus, the only non-transgressor, was treated as a criminal. And now we might face opposition with hope and even joy. Listen to the words of Peter, and we'll end with this. It's, I think Peter, again, is one who heard from Jesus at this Last Supper. I think he brings these ideas together. Again, he's writing in the context of opposition to the gospel. Ridicule, being maligned. And he brings these ideas together of the death, the substitutionary death of Christ, and living godly in a hostile world. Listen to what Peter says. Therefore, he says, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for, for I am holy. 
And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, if you call God father, listen to what he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We're exiles. We're sojourners in a world that is opposed to Christ and opposed to the message of Christ. What do you do? Well, you conduct yourselves with fear throughout your exile. Why? Knowing knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Why do I conduct myself with fear of God in this time of exile? It's because we've been ransomed by the blood of Christ. Our sins atoned for. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for the hope that we have in the midst of hostility. We do pray that our lives would would bring glory and honor to you that we we would not be those who are driven about by our circumstances, who are controlled by the way we are treated, but that we would be controlled by the Spirit, that we would conduct ourselves in this time of exile in fear, that we would fear you and that we would obey you. Lord, thank you that though we are transgressors, we might be accounted righteous because of the work of Christ. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.